This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, but one topic. We have Rob Ford and Showtime Sports President Stephen Espinoza. Rob Ford is the director of Goliath, a three-part documentary series which examines the life, career, and impact of Will Chamberlain. This is uh, this is the best sports doc I have seen in 2023. I thought it was fantastic. It will begin to uh, stream on Friday, July 14th on demand for all Paramount Plus with Showtime subscribers, and then it makes its on-air debut on Showtime Sunday, July 16th at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, and then episodes premiere each Sunday. Um, And so Rob Ford and Stephen F. Spinoza are my guests, and we go very, very deep into the film in terms of uh, why was this the right time to explore Will Chamberlain, how the project was conceived, the people that they wanted to talk to, uh, and they got um, they got approvals from Wilt's family. They got people that Wilt um, was very very close to throughout his life, and then obviously some major figures, including people Wilt played with, like Pat Riley, Billy Cunningham, um, Kevin Garnett, whose uh, company is one of the producers of this film, talks about Wilt's impact. It's uh, and then you know some journalism types like Jackie McMullen, Bob. Bob Ryan, et cetera. I should mention Jerry West as well is really, really good in this film. It is, um, it is superbly done. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, just how like one of these, uh, one of these really high end docs in sports gets uh, put together. So Rob Ford and Steven Espinoza coming up on the sports media podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, no bullshit here. This was fantastic, and I'm really, really excited to talk to these two gentlemen. Rob Ford is the director of Goliath, which is a three-part documentary series exploring the life, career, and impact of Will Chamberlain. Steven Espinoza is the president of Showtime Sports, obviously connected with this project, and I am pleased to be joined by both on the Sports Media Podcast. Rob, Steven, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Richard. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, Rob, I'm going to start with you. Um, this will be good practice for you, Rob, if you haven't been interviewed, because you get this question all the time. Um, why was this the right time to explore Will Chamberlain? Um, honestly, in my personal opinion, uh, the time has been ripe for, for decades. Uh, and, and this is probably something that has 
should have happened a long time ago, it was long overdue. I think what was special was the estate was particularly ready to support the project and give it the thrust it needed to happen um, as they are very protective of, as they like to call them, dip. Um, and then there's the Kevin Garnett component, who's a big fan and, you know, was driving the project and got the family excited as well. So I think, you know, the universe just aligned at the right time to have the right people in place. And then I would like to say selfishly, you know, we as the storytellers and filmmakers were able to gain the family's trust and confidence and allow them to be vulnerable throughout this process to give us the goods that we needed to make it true and authentic. And I think we were right for the project with the timing of everything coming together as well. Stephen, um, from from a media executive perspective, you know, Showtime's obviously done a lot of docs and um, and you've hit on some pretty historic figures. There's a there's a built in there's a built in interest for Will Chamberlain. That said, that doesn't necessarily mean you had to greenlight this. So from your perspective, why did you think this was the right time for this? Well, we're always looking for sort of provocative stories. That's 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 our brand. Um, we want to be a little bit edgy, a little bit uh, unexpected and, and really do the projects that uh, maybe other networks don't do or wouldn't do or are a little bit, uh, you know, shy away from. Uh, in particular for Wilt, you know, obviously one of the few names in, in, in sports, in athletic history, where, you know, they can be identified just by a first name. You know, so the awareness there, the knowledge is there, but notwithstanding his sort of legendary iconic status, I, I think most of us, have had it wrong uh, all along. I don't think there's the appreciation that there should be. Um, as somebody says very eloquently in the film, you know, he invented the whole, the, the role, the icon of the millionaire black superstar athlete. And this was 60 years ago, you know, and we can point to everyone from Kareem to Bill Russell, to Shaquille, to, you know, Victor Wembenyama, you know, as, as sort of beneficiaries of that. But he was doing all the things that all of those guys have done, but he was doing it 60 years ago. I'm going to stick with you, Steve, before I get to Rob. I'll hit Rob up on a lot of the content stuff. But in, in terms of putting a project like this together, um, there's a number of different uh, companies, for lack of a better word, who are part of this. Uh, you clearly have to figure out how it works with the Will Chamberlain estate. I would assume there's some component of that. And then obviously Showtime has to figure out like distribution and publicity. So what for you, um, I, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but as this project is sort of cons uh, the conception of this project, what has to happen from your end to actually get it to where we are now in July, where the public's about to see it? Well, this one was relatively painless. Um, because as Rob sort of alluded to, um, KG and his group did a lot of the work. Um, and when Kevin Garnett um, gets excited about something and puts his mind to something, there's no stopping it. Um, most of us know him as a guy on the court, uh, but he is the exact same personality, the exact same energy in a documentary pitch meeting, in a conversation over lunch. Mm -hmm. he, he is that guy. So... When, when you, you put those two things together here in this case, the enthusiasm of KG for this story and the passion, you know, and, and really the substance of it, then it made the decision um, all that easier. And then when that group 
you know, told me, well, we've really been working on this for a while. We have the relationship with the estate. You know, let's just find a filmmaker and go. It was one of the easier packages that has come together in, in recent memory. You know, the last doc we did, for example, earlier this year, um, stand with Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, we spent about 18 months getting the rights and the story and the personalities and all the figures together before we even really went to a, a filmmaker. And, you know, and Rob was our first choice on that one as well. So um, it didn't work out for reasons unrelated to the film. Um, but, you know, sometimes you, you get lucky. Someone has already done the legwork when they bring the project in the door. And that was the case on this project. All right, Rob, let's let's get to sort of the 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 thinking of this film as a filmmaker. The the thing with Wilt is you really could have done, as you know, eight hours on Wilt, 10 hours on Wilt. Like you, you have his origins in Philly. That's its own sort of story. You have Kansas, which you could have done multiple hours on, right? You have, he gets drafted into the NBA and or actually take that back. You have the Globetrotters. You could have done a year on the Globetrotters. You could do like a, an hour or plus on his Philadelphia stay. Continue on to San Francisco when that franchise moves. Obviously, you went pretty deep into the Lakers. And then he has this whole fascinating life after the Lakers when it comes to volleyball, his post-NBA career. He's an incredibly successful financial guy. And I obviously haven't even got into um, uh, you know, women and his relationships and obviously the famous 20,000 women quote. We'll get to that. So that's a real challenge as a filmmaker. If you have just a certain amount of like a finite a number of hours that you have. So when you approach this, like what was your thinking in terms of, right, how do I tell this massive story in honestly what turns out to be, I think, a limited amount of time? Yeah, um, it, it's, it's very challenging because to your point, you know, in some scenarios you have stories where you're really digging and pining and you have to take a little bit and, and stretch it to make it, you know, feel substantial. And in Will's case, it was the opposite. We had this wealth and then it was a matter of trying to make it fit within the time we had. But honestly, man, like for me, first and foremost, I being an avid diehard basketball fan was most interested in and most fascinated by his off the court story and experiences and interactions as like a character and a human being and try to live in that space as much as possible. The basketball obviously is the spine from a timeline perspective and what tracks and keeps us, you know, with, with, with gravity. Uh, but the most interesting stuff is happening for sure. Um, you know, with, uh, with, with things off the court. So we're kind of going through and just trying to fish and mine for as many of those stories as possible with the, um, you know, the interviews we have and the stories we come across in our research. And then the real challenge because of the period nature of this is what do we show visually to support, you know, some of the best stories there was like next to nothing, you know, archive wise to, to bring them to life. And so um, we ended up finding this company called Manual Cinema who does shadow animation and to me, that's one of the coolest, most exciting and unexpected parts of the project is how we're able to like resurrect these stories and give them visual resonance within the viewer from a truly emotional, you know, intimate perspective, 
but but very subjective of Wilt's point of view for that particular moment. And as we started to to, to sort of populate those stories and understand how we were going to use the the animation, um, it just kind of spoke for itself as far as the choices that we would make. And you know, with our team, we would sit and have conversations and and. Thanks to, you know, Steven and, and Showtime being like such trustworthy partners, as well as, you know, the religion of sports team with Gotham and Victor, where we were allowed to truly use our own palette of taste and sensibility to drive the things that we reacted to that were important to us, you know, as filmmakers. And a lot of the things that we were talking about here with respect to like the business and the finance and the politics were the things that I was just like, who knew? And like, how was this man doing this in the 1950s, in the 1960s? You know, Jackie Robinson has just broke the color line. We don't even have civil rights yet. This dude is talking about like, I should be an owner of a team. So it was just revolutionary for me. Uh, but ultimately, yes, the, the answer to your question is like, there was 50 things to choose from. When we narrowed it down, it was the things that we felt most of interest to us as storytellers and filmmakers. And then how do we color them with imagery to make them work in the film? Yeah, I'm going to stick with Rob, Stephen, for, for a couple of these. Um, to me... Um, it was vital in some ways to hear from Wilt's family. Like, I just think that and his friends of the era. Now, obviously, given when Wilt was born, there are some people who have passed. Wilt's parents have passed, etc. His sister in the film was unbelievable. I mean, she's a she's a she really, to me, is the best through line because she gives you a sense of who he was before he became Wilt with a capital W. Um, so, you know, like. You have Pat Riley and you have Kevin Garnett and you have a lot of thoughtful speakers. But in general, like you can get those people, you know, if the logistics and timing works. But as the as a filmmaker, did you write down sort of initially like a list of the people you really wanted? And how important was it for you to find people who were uh, contemporaries of Wilt, who who are now whatever in their 70s and 80s, who could really speak to him firsthand? Yeah, um, it was quite a dance navigating that part of the project but to your point and question yes we had <laughs> a, 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 an excel document with tabs you know tier one tier two tier three and honestly we probably had about 50 60 names you know that we were considering and to me it was imperative and non-negotiable to always defer to the the, the goal for us was we got to put as many people in the chair who actually shared life and space and time and energy on this earth with Wilt so we could channel that into the film. Um, so, yes, it was family, you know, starting with his actual, you know, we have both his sisters, Selena and Barbara. Then we went to nieces and nephews. Then we went to his closest, most immediate friends, basketball or not, in the Philadelphia area, like the the legend Sonny, Sonny Hill. Uh, and as we started talking to these people and layering them in, it it felt you could feel the weight of Wilt's presence start to materialize in a truly like authentic and and powerful you know way. And, and then we colored that with the uh, the other voices, whether it be celebrity or a teammate or you know a media person who covered him at that time to try and get something you know critical. 
Uh, but to me, yeah, this movie, or excuse me, this series is not what it is without the family. And that to me is the thing that ultimately validates it and makes it legitimate. And we were able to share the film with them. That was to me like the scariest, but most, you know, like anticipated moment because they were, again, once they even said yes, they were still very guarded when we met them for the first time. And we sat down and had the first interview. I feel like I was like in a police interrogation, <laughs> you know, trying to earn like trust. Uh, but it's funny because like I interviewed Selena Gross first in Philly. Um, and I could tell by the end of it, things that changed because she pulled me to the side and was basically like, thank you. I trust you. I feel like you're the right person to tell my brother's story. And I started getting text messages from other family members. So I can tell she got on the phone and said, OK, yeah, he's good. You can talk to him, you know, type of deal. Um, and then we ended up get to, to Vegas with Barbara, which is the one you talked about. She loves so much. And she's the one that held the shrine. Literally, her house is like the Wilt Chamberlain you know, like historical museum and each room is dedicated to a different part. Like you said, you can do a chapter on Kansas, a chapter on Harlem Globetrotters, a chapter uh, on the Lakers. That's how our house is sort of segregated. Um, but yeah, the, the, the family to me is just what separates it. And it's like, a, it's a little bit of a flex as a filmmaker. Like, I know this is the real true story because I got the people who lived it with them who care about him, who have his best interests at heart. And they're speaking honest and truly about the good and the bad, you know, of Will as they knew him. So uh, just at this point, I'll let the listeners know that there, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of voices in this film, including, as Rob mentioned, Wilt's family, but very, very famous people. Jerry West is really, really good in this and interesting. Billy Cunningham um, had a lot of great insight into Wilt. Pat Riley, great insight in terms of Wilt, um, when he was with the Lakers, Rick Barry as well. And then there are, you know, more contemporary voices, uh, you know, like like Kevin Garnett, who could sort of speak, even though he obviously didn't play in Wilt's era, but could sort of speak to um, Will's impact in terms of player empowerment. So there's a lot of voices in this. This is going to be for both of uh, you guys, Stephen and Rob. Again, I'll start with Rob and then Stephen. You should follow. One of the big, I don't know if risk is the right word. Maybe it is. But one of the big things with this film is that you decided to recreate Wilt's voice with AI. Um, and he's in many ways, he narrates this story through um, footage that's provided by essentially like the family, provided by the estate. So that's really, really tricky. One, you have to like technologically figure out how to do it. It's got to really sound like them or else it's going to really come off like just like comic book stuff. <laughs> And then lastly, it's got to like, it's really got to like be thoughtful in terms of like he's expressing his feelings on some, you know, really significant stuff, uh, race relations, uh, introspection, you know, what it was like to be that big sort of in a world that's, it's much, much smaller. I got to be honest, like when I read that in the initial like uh, press notes, I'm like, these guys are not going to pull this off. This seems like honestly, like kind of a little bit of uh, uh, a magic trick. But but I have to be honest, I, I feel like you pulled it off. It 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 was not as distracting as I initially went in, which to me comes off as a win. It it actually it fit. And so Rob, I'm sure as the director here, you know that that is like that was a big big. That's either going to work or it's going to be a disaster. So I wanted to get both from your perspective and Steven's perspective how you approach that. 
Well, I think the first, you know, to do order of business for us and our creative team was how can we make this as personally subjective as possible um, from Wilt's voice, from Wilt's point of view for the viewer. We want you to feel like you are actually meeting, experiencing, feeling Wilt Chamberlain. And because, you know, he's no longer with us, it's challenging because resources are limited. Um, And then we're talking about a period piece where, you know, the archive can be scarce in certain areas. So, um, you know, we would have discussions about how we could go about achieving that and what could be done. And credit, you know, honestly, is due to one of our story producers, Chloe Boxer, and our co-director, Chris Dillon, how they collectively came up with the idea of, well, he's written all this material, you know, several books, and obviously he's done countless print, you know, interviews. So there's a lot of material that exists in his head in a very first person nature where he's telling you how he feels, you know, about various chapters of his life. Is there a way we can sort of find a way to integrate that into the film? And then the idea was pitched to use this AI technology. Um, Stephen will talk about this, but none of this was in the budget. None of this was initially conceived to be a part of the film. So I had the fun task of figuring out how to pay for it. And, you know, that's a whole other podcast, but that's also my job. And so we got that sorted. And and then to your point, you have to find a company that can do it justice. And the crazy part is the company we use is called Respecio. They're based in Ukraine. So they were dealing with the Russia thing while we were making the movie and bombs. And it was just crazy. But the whole thing was like, Wilt is a larger than life character. As you just mentioned, one of the most iconic and famous American historical figures to date without a comprehensive deep dive done of this nature. So we should swing big. We should take risks. It's it's almost, you know, a homage to him and how he lived his life. And it feels fitting so we yeah we went for it and and swung for the fences with the ai technology as well as with the shadow animation those are really scary choices to make but if you can land that plane they make the film something truly special so it was all of those ingredients and then yeah when we pitched it to you know steven and the network and again they were just consummate supporters very open-minded very creative guys and they got it and gave us the support to go after it. And then we just had to really hone the voice, which took some time and several iterations. We sent them hours upon hours of real Wilt voice to composite. And then we would tweak, 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 tweak until we got to something that we felt, you know, worked. So I'm glad to hear you you, you bought it and, you know, it landed for you. Steven, um, so you got a bunch of creatives who are bringing you this idea, right? Which is definitely going to cost Showtime some money and uh, definitely put you a little bit on the griddle because this is not something, at least from 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 my memory, that Showtime has necessarily done, an AI-narrated uh, doc of somebody that famous, too. It's one thing if the person's not that famous, right? But Wilt's famous. I know Wilt's voice. So how did you, when, when Rob and, and, and his group came uh, uh, came your way with this idea, what was your what was your thought? Well, I, I think there, there's two elements in there that, that Rob touched on that, that I think are, are really courageous in terms of, of the creative choices. And one was the use of the animation, um, because it's, it's not traditional animation, you know, by any means. It's very sort of abstract and, and conceptual. And then there's the AI. Um, and of course, you know, you say AI in documentary, 
in those of us who pay a lot of attention to documentaries immediately go back to Roadrunner, the Anthony Bourdain doc, which generated a lot of controversy, um, rightly or wrongly, for the way that happened. I think there's a lot of distinctions. We we talked about that internally, and I think there are some some distinctions which made this a, a no-brainer for us. Um, a, there was a plethora of materials. There were just a wide range of books and articles and interviews and footage um, so that we could create a quote-unquote script that consisted entirely of things he had actually said. So everything there is an actual quote or a general summary of thoughts and, and statements that he made. And we've got the original record to prove that. And we've also got, you know, even you know, better than the original record, people who were around him and were very personally close, keeping us honest throughout that process. Um, so look, you know, our, our brand, the network brand, something that we, you know, really look for is allowing the athlete to tell their story in their words. It goes back, uh, you know, to Kobe Bryant Muse and everything we've done since then. You know, and this was the challenge because we had not done one with a uh, with a, a subject who had passed away. So how do you do it in his voice when he passed away nearly 25 years ago? And how do you make this not a bunch of talking heads sitting around talking about a guy um, and talking about events that happened 60 years ago? And I think what what Rob came to us was a, a daring and ultimately very effective answer to that we are going to use his voice and we're going to make this much more interesting than having a bunch of talking heads sitting around recreating events that happened 50 years ago. Rob, one of the things that, um, one of the things that I think the doc makes abundantly clear is that at least is my takeaway is that Wilt really is a victim of narratives, um, of the time. Um, it's very clear that the press of the time, essentially tagged him as a guy who couldn't win the big one or a guy who was a loser or a guy who was only a, um, a point scorer as opposed to this unique player who I would argue essentially gave any of his teams a chance to win. Like, they weren't going to be anywhere without him. But he's cast as, I think, whether it was Jackie McMullen or Bob Ryan and a lot of thoughtful voices said, as like uh, the antithesis of Bill Russell, the selfish individual or individualism, right, versus the collective versus team. And I think what your documentary really did well was it it gave you a much broader sense of like the, the story that we think about Will Chamberlain is incorrect. Like he was really different. He wasn't... Um, he was ahead of his time in terms of like his value and his and and what he was worth. He was ahead of his time in wanting a piece of ownership and which we see now all the time with players and Michael Jordan. And so I feel like you told the story and then me as a viewer, I have to sort of take my um, opinion of it. But is it your hope in some ways as the filmmaker that maybe people will um, rethink whatever they thought of Will Chamberlain, particularly as a as a basketball player, um, because I thought you did an amazing job. At least you made me like rethink like, man, this, the, the media of the day had this guy, they were, the media of the day was at fault here. They, they had it wrong on this guy. Absolutely. Uh, that was, uh, a very important, uh, goal of ours to, um, you know, state the facts as they were, which for whatever reason got warped or, you know, skipped over at the time 
for what he was dealing with, whether it was a, a, a several coaches, you know, whether it was the lack of team support or when he actually was playing team oriented basketball and getting credit for that and putting that on the scale, you know, with Russell. But, you know, that this is why we choose to open the film with the Kansas, um, you know, championship game, because for the basketball narrative, you know, he was he was deemed a loser. He was deemed an underachiever with the physical gifts he was blessed with. Um, and it started at Kansas and it haunted him for his entire, you know, basketball career. Um, and he was exclusively to blame for that. And there's so much more to that story that's not being told and unjustly, you know, not being defended, you know, by what really happened for him. So we wanted to to clear the record. But it was a fine line that we internally fought with a, a lot because we also weren't looking to sort of do some PSA, cry me a river, you know, hey, this is wrong, you know, you guys. But the facts are the facts. And so, you know, how do we tell that line to present what really happened? And literally, I'm so happy you said it and you feel it that way and allow the viewer to make their own choice about if they actually believe what was said or with this information and these visuals and this story, do you see it differently? But we do feel like there is, you know, some restructuring of how you see him and how he was perceived that the film is trying to address hopefully that is necessary and and we do think we've done just by him in achieving that yeah and, and i think sorry richard i i think the passage of time i think necessitates the telling of the story as well because i think you know for those of, of us who were nba fans and saw him play at the time you know certainly you have a different perception but if you ask i think the casual fan today and they probably say yes he's a legendary basketball player he scored 100 points and the infamous quote about 20,000 women. In his looking at his life overall, those are the three things that are probably the least interesting about <laughs> Will Chamberlain. The three <laughs> things that people know the best are the three things that are most unworthy of being known because everything else about him, from his politics to the way he viewed finance, the way he viewed his role in society, even his struggles personally. Uh, of, you know, of feeling a little bit of an outcast. All of that is far more interesting on a human level than the things that people knew about it. Yeah, that's well said. And um, I did think a lot about the Kansas loss. One, um, <laughs> I think in today's sort of numbers, analytics, smarter writers world, you, you would have understood Carolina versus Kansas in terms of like who would have been favored Who's not in terms, you would have looked at it in terms of, I mean, real just outclassing in terms of coaching. I mean, that, that really, I think Rob really sort of nailed is the fact that like Carolina had an advanced coach against Kansas's coach at the time. Um, and again, we're, 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 we're talking about it was a double overtime loss or triple overtime, whatever it was that famous game is sort of like, it's always a coin flip in that sense. Anyway, it's just like that Don Nelson shot, uh, with the Celtics. If that thing rims off, it could be an entirely different narrative, um, for Wilt. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I, uh, you know, Rob, I want to get to the, um, to, to the sex part of Wilt's doc, because obviously he has the, the, you know, the most famous quote of his life is, um, claims of sleeping with 20,000 women. What, what, um, what is a good reminder, and I had forgotten, is this all comes among the uh, – he's on a book tour when Magic announces, right, that that he's HIV positive. So how the country is thinking about sex at that moment is so um, – there's so much going on just in society as Wilt is sort of making these uh, bravado, libido kind of uh, uh, claims. Um so in one sense, he's really in some ways also hurt by the time the weird, just the weird timing of the book came out. But the thing that I really appreciated that your doc did is you, you, you like address this, like you address this sociologically, you address it in terms of how it impacted just Will's life, uh, Will's life, how it impacted how his friends saw him. And I thought the best line on all this was from Will's sister. You got six sisters. You cannot be talking that dumb talk. Like the great thing about it is like you literally like you asked Wilt's sister, like, what'd you think of this? And that to me is so revelatory in the whole doc. And that like they had opinions on it. Like you didn't, you know, like they had their own take on it. And so I just wonder because it's such as Steven said, I agree with you. There's far more. There's a million things more interesting about Wilt. But this is one of the most famous things about Wilt. And you have to address it in the doc for sure in, I'd say, a pretty large way. So how'd you sort of just, in terms of as the filmmaker thinking about this, how'd you want to approach the subject? Yeah, it, it was a, a very sort of interesting hot potato in the sense of, for us as well, it, it was not the thing that was the most magnetic or, or had the most gravitational pull. Um, but we knew we had to uh, explore it. And we know the non-basketball person who's just showing up with a very distant sort of understanding of Will, that's the thing that they're probably going to come looking for. So it was like, how much, from what angle, and at what point in the story do we decide to introduce that, you know? Um, and to be honest, it moved, you know, two or three times from you know where it was and then we had the conversation of do we do the whole thing in one breath or do you get a little you know nugget and then we revisit and and so it was just quite the 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 balancing act but the thing at least me personally i was most interested in was the sort of mental health element and the psychological element of true or not what does it mean that a person even engages in being participatory in a statement like this and what does it say about them as a human being or what are we not understanding beyond just the surface level of this shocking statement um and those were the layers that we were trying to peel which led us to dr orna who i'm just the biggest fan of from couples therapy to really help us get into the psychology of it and i i feel like what you think is the most famous thing and probably have your own assumption of what it means about him. Once you watch the movie, I think you actually get a lot more than you expect from that particular beat and really have for the good or the bad, or, you know, for the empathetic or for the more judgmental, I don't know, just a deeper understanding of like, 
this guy was dealing with a lot and that statement is rooted in things that go back all the way as far as to like his adolescent childhood that he's still trying to address publicly even post basketball to remain relevant to seem uh you know uh, attractive and and desirable um for me it it, it was kind of like um it was heartbreaking like it's not cool or exciting or you know times have changed but even for that period of time it just really revealed this sort of hollow emptiness within him that kind of echoes throughout the film um on and off the court that you know he's he's a tragic figure you know and, and this kind of like is the the billboard most public version of that that touched everyone um but yeah, I, and, and talking to the family, I was I was scared to ask the question, <laughs> to be honest. You know, these are women that are like 80 plus years old. They're, again, very protective of their brother. And they always think someone is coming to be salacious and, and from a sensational angle, because this is the thing that he's kind of a right target for. But that answer and you, you know, responding to it was a byproduct again of her just feeling comfortable and honest to be trusting like let me tell you what i really thought about it and what i said to him when i learned of it um so i was proud that you get the psychological you get the personal you get the pop culture impact all in sort of one breath of conversation and then do what you want with that as the viewer yeah and and i think you know it's not so much was it twenty thousand or ten thousand or fifteen thousand to me the approach is what does it say about this person, the motivations of this person that will say this and feels the need to say this? You know, what what is behind that? What kind of experience has gone into that? And I, I think we're, we're presenting a, a complex, nuanced picture, you know, and you, you juxtapose his relationships with women in his personal life with his relationships with female athletes. And I, I mean, not personal relationships, but his his very sincere, unyielding support for women's sports at a time when those sports were not getting the support, certainly that we see today. And, you know, you can look intangibly whether, you know, Florence Griffin would have been who she was without some early experiences in, in his track. I, you know, you start to build this picture. Okay. You start with the 20,000 women and you, then you add, well, there's six sisters and there's a long time sincere support for women's athletics, you know, maybe there's some more nuance here. Look, it's not our job to reform Will Chamberlain or cover up, you know, but it is our job to come to to present the complete picture. It's not just the 20,000 women. There is, you know, a whole bigger, broader picture of his relationships with various women figures throughout his life. Yeah, well, the one thing you guys, I thought the film did really well is you presented that side that there were complexities to Wilt and that um, there was, you know, you had a romantic, one of his romantic partners who sort of spoke on this um, really thoughtfully and tried to sort of un give you a sense of like, this is why Wilt, well, you know, this is sort of how Wilt sort of approached women at that time. But then maybe the more interesting one, and I wish I remember her name off the top of my head, but there was a woman that you talked to in the film that Wilt had hit on. And she's like, well, I'm just not interested. I just want to be your friend. And then they went on to have like a 20-year friendship where Wilt would call her late at night to talk. And it, what, 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 
was very clear to me, Rob, and I wonder if you saw the this is the same, is in some ways he was just very lonely. And he there was not many people who could sort of who he could trust to really sort of show who he was. And I thought that woman was particularly interesting because clearly, like once Wilt stopped seeing her as any kind of potential sexual partner, you actually got past all that bullshit, and then they had a real friendship. And she actually gave you great insight into who he was as a, as a human being. Um, and so I was glad you found her, because to me, she really provided a lot of interesting um, insight in, into the complexity of Wilt, beyond just, here's this guy, you know, very good-looking guy, wealthy, beautiful house, etc., you know, living in the 70s, playboy lifestyle. Yeah, Jessica Bernstein. Bernstein. There you go. Right. She's a you know photographer. Um, but you you nailed it. Like it, it, she was such a great find for us to be in contrast with the romantic relationship. Again, just to see this, the many dimensions and angles to this man. But it's it's true. Like once they got to a point where he realized there was nothing that was going to happen, he was able to let his guard down and be vulnerable and she really truly saw him for who he was um but he he had very few relationships like that to your point relative to the loneliness um which again to me it it just shows the the sad nature you know of his life in in certain parts whereas you know the woman that he was with it, in an intimate and, and sexual way, it could only go so far and it was very short and very limited. So it could develop develop no depth. And they really didn't get a chance to know him because he needed to maintain a certain image and perception to those people. Um, but yeah, it, it, that she was great just to help us. Again, the man is many layers, you know? Um, and, and again, it's like, Oh, I, keep, I keep using this term because it's like a favorite film of mine. I feel like he's a, a, a real life version of someone similar to like Forrest Gump, where he just lives through so many different historical times and moments. And there's this one man that so many people talk about in different ways, depending on when they met him and how they met him and where they were at in his life, which to me makes for a fascinating character because there's so many different variations to this person, but they all are a composite of who he is. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, last uh, three for me. Uh, Rob, has the family seen the film yet? Yes, they have. They cried. They rejoiced. They celebrated. They gave us their blessing. They felt um, like you know, their uncle was was sort of brought back to life. They really appreciated the uh, the AI voice and the personal nature of it. And, and believe it or not, they learned a lot, you know, because even they only knew him through a certain lens in a certain way. But there were other aspects of his life that they didn't have, you know, deep details on that the film presented to them that they found super informative. But, yeah, they fully support one more for Rob. And then the last one will be for both you and uh, Steve and Rob. Um, you made a conscious choice as a filmmaker in some ways very late in the film uh, to show Will coming back to Kansas and to have finally gotten acceptance from 
that school. And it seemed, at least based on um, uh, your filmmaking, it, like he really wasn't sure. He wasn't necessarily sure how he was going to be received. Um, and so uh, I guess I would ask, like, was it important for you in some ways near the conclusion of this that like to show the viewer that um, there was some uh, growth from from those who were following and, and watching and having an opinion of Wilt by, you know, by the end of his life, like that in some ways, I'm obviously not happy Wilt's gone, but he lived long enough where there were people at least who could understand and appreciate sort of, you know, his achievement where had he sort of passed, you know, in 1969, 1970, like that wouldn't have happened. He would have been caricatured as he was. And so I, I had not seen that footage of him coming back to Kansas. I'd never seen that speech he gave. Um, maybe I, maybe I saw it and just sort of passed through my mind, but I was really touched by that. Like, because I think Wilt was touched by that. Like he was, he was genuinely moved by the fact that the people of Kansas, like had, had come to accept them and like, you know, what, so what he lost that game long ago, but like he would always be a Jayhawk for them. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it represented so many things for us from a storytelling perspective. It was, you know, a great bookend, given that we opened with Kansas and that's sort of the inciting wound that he then carries, you know, throughout his career in life. And we get to bring that full circle um, with that same, you know, group of people. Um, but also it, as you just mentioned, like just in the raw footage of watching that is so emotional. And after you've gone on this three hour ride with this man and you really get who he is and what he's gone through, your heart is heavy you know for for that moment um and it is him finally sort of you know overcoming facing his fears and and getting the celebration that he so deserved uh and i think you know it's also i would think unexpected because of what he did so much after kansas and the nba and then the globetrotters and all these achievements you you, you would feel maybe there's some sort of lifetime achievement moment there before it to be back at his college, you know, where he spent not a lot of time. Um, it was just an interesting, you know, sort of way to to land it. But the emotional height of it, I think, was what attracted us. And then it just gave us a sort of nice button, you know, to the story as well um, with that choice. Yeah. All right, Stephen, this this answer could be very different for if I ask poses to you and I pose this to Rob. Mm -hmm. Um, how will you judge success for this film? What is success for you? Well, look, the, 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 the first standard is the creative standard. And, and that's already, uh, that's already been met. I, I think this is exactly the type of sophisticated, nuanced, complete human storytelling that we sent out uh, to achieve. And that's a, a tribute to Rob, to his co-director, to, um, religion of sports and happy Madison and, and, and village roadshow, everybody that, you know, the, the village that it took to produce this um, for us success. Look, um, I, I think it's an interesting market. I mean, I think there are people over the last, I don't know, five to eight years who have said we're in the golden age of sports documentaries uh, and maybe in documentaries in general, um, we're seeing the content market change tremendously over literally just the last 12 months. And every single media company is rethinking their approach, um, whether it's sports or non-sports or documentary or, or, or scripted. Everyone is re uh, reevaluating what they're doing 
the value of what they're doing. And I think, you know, to um, I, I it sometimes feel that everyone's looking for a home run, that everything that has to be produced, you know, we probably went from an era where there was just too much content and too much across the board to now, I think we're threatening or at least risking going into an era where everyone is looking for just the home run, you know, just the Marvel movie would be the, the comparison, the analogy on the filmmaking side. And I think it's important that there are still, uh, that there are still room in the market for projects like this. You know, is, is it going to get Yellowstone viewers? I hope it does. You know, I hope it does last dance numbers, but, um, but the reality is with this, such a crowded market, you know, whilst we look at, as, as you're well aware, 30-day viewing, it's not the first night, it's not the first week. The first time we really look at it is in 30 days. And for us, for something like this, I think it will span the test of time. And I think it, we'll be looking at a long window where people will continue to discover this and be pleasantly surprised. So, Rob, I feel like, you know, you, at somewhere at your core, you have to feel like you you made the film you wanted. Um, I, again, I... I I, I cannot recommend it enough. I thought it, I thought it was fantastic, but I, I don't know for you if is it is it um, is it critical praise? Is it the praise of your peers? Is it the the, the family feels good about it? You know, and for some directors, you know, at least commercial filmmakers, be like, obviously it's box office. You know, you want a Mission Impossible six or something like that. So how do you uh, you know for you what's success for you when it comes to this film? Um, yeah, I think first and foremost, I am very critical and cynical of self and have a very high bar of personal you know sort of appreciation and i'm very happy with it and proud of it and would show it to any and everyone and feel confident about that so that is success within of itself uh i would say thereafter it's Steven, Showtime, all of the Religion of Sports, Village Roadshow, Happy Madison, Hilltap, all of our production partners who help put the project together and entrust us with the ability to tell the story. They're all celebrating it. Um, and then I, I think external of the people involved in making it, 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 it for me, it's the family. Like going through this process and getting close with them and spending time with them and, you know, getting to know Wilt through making the doc, um, we became close and it became, you know, beyond just like a job or, you know, telling a story where personally I felt and still feel since it hasn't been publicly released a great degree of responsibility because of who he is and the national historical treasure that he, he is. Um, you know, pressure to 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 get it right and to just to to do justice to him, but also honor, you know, for all that comes with that. So I think the most probably even more than showing it to Stephen and Showtime, et cetera, showing it to the family gave me the most anxiety and concern of like, well, what do they think? And just like waiting to hear that feedback was a tough period for me until they finally responded. So once they said, yes, given the love I have for them, it meant everything to me. So I kind of feel like the public releases house money. Like hopefully people love it. It gets great reviews. And I just want as many eyeballs as possible. Um, but I feel like 
the validation has already happened, you know, to be honest. The film is Goliath. It's a three-part documentary series exploring the life and the career and the impact of Will Chamberlain. Uh, Goliath debuts on demand and on streaming Friday, July 14th for all Paramount Plus with Showtime subscribers. Then it makes its on-air debut on Showtime July 16th at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific with episodes premiering each Sunday. Um, again, uh, it is absolutely one of the best sports docs I've seen this year. Um, and if anybody who's read me, and I know Steven has for a long time, I, I, if I believe in something, I'm going for it. If I don't, I, I'm not going to bullshit people. Like, this is really, really well done. Um, and I think anybody, particularly if you're under, like, 35, uh, you just will learn about Will Chamberlain, um, who is just one of these, like, seminal figures that... Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, if you think Wemon is like just an interesting unicorn, like this guy is just from, uh, uh, he was just a fascinating person at a fascinating time. Rob, congratulations. You really, you and your group directed a phenomenal film. Steven, well done, man, for, uh, for continuing to have some high-end uh, sports documentary stuff on your, uh, on your network. That's always appreciated. And I appreciate both of your time today uh, coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. We appreciate you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Rob Ford and Stephen Espinoza for their time and their insights. Uh, again, uh, highly recommended this uh, this documentary. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the archives. There should be uh, some interesting stuff for you. We had James Andrew Miller on the ESPN management changes. Uh, Washington Post uh, sports columnist Sally Jenkins was a guest of on this podcast, June 21st, just uh, came out with what maybe is the best sports feature of the year on Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Had Taylor Twelman talking about how Apple MLS can maximize Leo Messi's time in America. Kate Abdo was a guest of this podcast in June. We've had our regular roundtables with Austin Karp and Chad Finn and John Lewis. Again, if you like this stuff, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. Most of all, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.